following the story of God. We've been doing that. We started with God in creation and how he created all things. We looked at how Adam and Eve brought sin into the world by their choice to rule rather than him. We brought, we talked about how death entered behind that and how God then, even in that moment, made a promise that he would deliver them uh, from that death and that sin through a child of Eve. And the long and short of it is the Bible follows that story from that moment forward, from chapter 3 of Genesis. The whole story of the Bible really is about that promised child, that promised seed, who is God himself. So we saw a flood attempt to stop that. We saw multiple different things come and go. We saw Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Israel becoming a nation, Israel being enslaved for 400 years, God raising up Moses to deliver these people, Israel, out um, of that slavery, bring them to a land that he promised to give them ahead of time, Uh, enter that land through the hand of Joshua, and then face war after war and fail to take over the land as they were supposed to. Instead, they compromised. It brought in all kinds of drama and trouble. And as a result, God began this series of, interactions, I guess you could say, with them where God would raise up a judge who would be a leader that would set the people free from the the, the oppression of enemies in their land. Uh, but as soon as they were free, they'd go right back to it again. And they'd go right back to the pagan idol worship and the sin and everything else and fall back under the oppression of somebody else. And then God would raise another judge. That's where Samson comes in, Delilah, some of these other people. Uh, so, or Deborah, I mean, and some of these others. And then towards the end of that time period, we looked at Ruth. That was last week. And the Bible is so cool how powerfully it focuses on women. So this week, right after Ruth, probably the same time period that Ruth is alive, we have Hannah. Uh, in fact, Ruth, the book of Ruth ends, and we go to 1 Samuel, which is where we are right now. And that's the ninth book of the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, turn in 1 Samuel to or turn in 1 Samuel, turn in it to 1 Samuel, which is the ninth book of the Bible. And you'll see to your left is Ruth, to your right is Samuel. So literally, uh, Hannah and Ruth were probably at the same time alive. The secret to the power in prayer is what we're talking about today. All of us have prayed. I can pretty much say with 100% certainty, every person on earth has prayed. Can pretty much say that if they're old enough to communicate, there's probably not a person on this earth that hasn't prayed. The question is just who they're praying to, you know, and what they believe about who they're praying to or what they're doing. Today we're looking at an amazing prayer, but this is not about, listen to me, how to get God to do what you want him to do in prayer. That's not the case. This is about finding power in prayer, power to be satisfied power to be at peace, power to believe. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. We'll read a few verses. Uh, As she, that's Hannah, continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. 
And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered her and said, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Lord, your word is awesome. I say that every week. I say that exact thing every week. But I feel like every time I look down at it, that's the response I have. It's amazing that you have provided it to us. It's amazing that people have literally bled and died to put this book into my hand and into the hands of everybody in this room that's willing to hold one. Lord, you you have preserved your word for thousands of years through the blood of your saints, Father. And I pray we never take that lightly. It is your word, not mine. Don't ever want it to be mine. My word has no power, Lord. Your word has all power. And I pray today, I'm a student as well, and we hear from you, from what you have to say, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I got a very close friend that asks me for prayer all the time. Uh, he'll send me text messages, he'll call me regularly, ask me for prayer. What makes this particularly surprising is that this man is devoutly devoted to another religion. Not Christianity at all. In fact, if there was an opposite, that's probably where you would place him. Uh, he calls me constantly, though, and asks me to pray. Why? Like, why does he want me to pray? You know, the, he knows what, what I, who I am and what I do. The same man asked me to pray for his father regularly, who's already passed away. But he wants me to pray on his behalf and that God will have mercy on him. Why ask me for that? We believe in dramatically different gods. In fact, uh, our, our, you know, the gods of, the gods that I'm discussing here have been in a sense at war for a long time. The people, the followers are at war for a long time. It's pretty surprising that he would call. But there's power in prayer, right? There's power in prayer. People believe it whether they admit it or not. People believe it whether they, even people, listen, even people who don't believe in any God at all still want you to pray in tough times. They may just not say that. Hey, uh, remember me. You know, or, or uh, uh, send me good vibes. Or send me uh, happy thoughts. Or send your healing thoughts. Or, or call upon the universe. You know, they, wh- what are they trying to accomplish by saying all those things? Like, what are they hoping that's going to do? Because let's be honest, is there really any power in good vibes? Or happy thoughts, or a universe. You know, I saw a show the other day where one of the characters was so burdened down with his life and the way his life had turned out and what was ahead of him. He was so burdened down, and this guy comes up to him and gives him this little yin yang thing, if you know what that is, a little amulet thing, and tells him that peace is in the middle between the light and the dark, that, that, uh, Balance is between the two. Come on, man. That sounds great, but how in the world do you get in that place and stay there? That's no help. That's like pointing at a star and saying there's there's help over there. You know, that that's no help. Like, how do you get to that whatever he's talking about? So, 
As those who pray to the God of the Bible, that would be the majority of us in the room, if not all of us. How do we find peace? Because we struggle, no doubt. So how do we find peace? Prayer is not something we just aim at heaven or we aim at God. Prayer is not making a wish and hoping for the best. You know, prayer is always, listen, always about communication with God. You're asking him to stop and listen and respond. Think about that every time you pray. You're asking God to stop and listen and respond. Not just, I want this, Lord, please. You're asking him, hey, stop what you're doing. I know this is a little dramatic, but stop what you're doing. Listen to me and respond. So here's a point. I always give you a point to remember. We're going to dive in here. But when we persistently go to God from an honest, devoted, and broken heart, we'll find that the power of prayer is peace. All right? And that's on the sheets in the back back there. If you want to hear it again, we, when we persistently go to God from an honest, devoted, and broken heart, we'll find that the power in prayer is peace. So this story begins with this guy named Elkanah who had two wives, Panina and her, and she had two kids. And then we have Hannah who was barren. So look back at chapter one, look at verse three. Uh, and you're going to turn in your Bible here if you haven't. So verse three says, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. Now we'll talk about them next week. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. Multiple wives here, by the way, not okay. Never been okay. Culturally, it might have been a thing, whatever, but it was never okay with God. And every time you see it, there is always struggle. In fact, here they're called rivals. I'm sorry, but there's no such thing as sister wives. I'm not throwing bones. I'm just saying it's not true. Biblically speaking, it's not true. Here they are literally rivals. Um, Shiloh is a town 26 miles north of Jerusalem. It's still there today, although it's in the West Bank, which is Palestinian-controlled. When Joshua brought the people over, the, over into the Promised Land, the tabernacle where the ark was that went with them, the temple before the temple, planted, they planted it down there at this place called Shiloh, and it stayed there for 369 years until the time of David. Uh, when he brought the ark into Jerusalem and then they built the temple. So we'll come to that later. But that's that's what this place Shiloh is. It was where everybody came to see the Lord in the temple. It's where the priests were, or tabernacle. Verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah is a good example of loving your wife through hurt. But he's also <laughs> he's also not hearing the hurt in his wife's heart. And I giggle because without sharing too much, Molly and I have been through some similar times where, uh, you know, I love her to death. And, and, and I want her to be satisfied, but at the same time, I'm not hearing the hurt in her heart. You know, and that's where he's at right here. And notice that provoking and irritating here, it happens when they go to the temple. This woman is not mocking her rival because she's barren. 
he's, she's mocking her because God made her barren. And every time they go back to the temple, it's almost like God must have cursed you. Man, we gotta be danger, we gotta be careful with that. That's dangerous. That's the kind of stuff we can get sucked into if we're not careful. Um, and we're not directly told, but what do you think Hannah's prayer life looked like at this time? What do you think it looked like at this time? Year after year. You see that phrase in there? And year after year after year. Many people believe they can talk and text at the same time, not throwing any stones. Uh, but uh, many people believe they can do both at once. The fact of the matter is you can't. Like, you can't. You cannot have, I cannot stand in front of two human beings and talk to both of them and carry the conversation at exactly the same time, on the same level. You, you can't. One's losing a little bit as you go. That's the way we treat prayer sometimes. Like it's multitasking. Like just throwing words out here and there as I go. While I'm talking, I might throw a prayer. But I'm not saying you can't do that. But one's losing. I don't think this is the way Hannah's prayer life looked. I think Hannah's prayer life year after year was epic. And we see that because of the way this ends. But look at verse 9. I have to keep shoving these on my face, man. I'm getting there. Turn 50 this year. Verse 9. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. It says temple, but this is the tabernacle, the portable temple before the permanent one. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, that means armies, Jehovah, proper name, God of armies if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant but will give to your servant a son then i'll give him to the lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head notice here she's not saying i promise or i swear if you then i promise or i promise i will if you this that's not what she's saying she's making a vow that's like a contract It's an act of worship that is pulled from the Old Testament. It came with extreme conditions if it was not kept. It's a big, big deal. And it appears it was a Nazarite vow because she mentions no razor touching his head. And you can look that up in your own time. That comes from Numbers chapter 6. But maybe she was thinking of Samson's birth. Samson, Remember, Samson's parents couldn't have kids either until until him. So maybe she's thinking of that. And she's devoting and calling on it. She would have known about Samson. So maybe she's calling on that same thing. But this woman is devoted to seeing her son love the Lord even before her son is born. Uh, cool little side note with that Leonard Ravenhill. Some of y'all may know who he is. Most of you probably don't. But he is a very famous early century evangelist uh, that traveled the world that was, was hugely impactful. Maybe second to Billy Graham. Uh, but on this is taken from a book about his biography. It says, on June 18, 1907, a midwife delivered Leonard Ravenhill at home, bathed and dressed him, then quietly left the room, leaving mother and child together. Leonard's mother told him 20 years later that after the midwife left the room, she laid her hands on him and prayed, Lord, make this boy be a preacher or don't let him live. That's pretty powerful. But I feel like this is where Hannah is. Fully given her son's life 
to the Lord. Look at verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Go on and quit drinking. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm, I'm a woman troubled in the spirit. I, I haven't drunk wine or strong drink. I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't, re, don't uh, regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of the great anxiety and vexation. Uh, most say Eli didn't realize she was praying because she was mumbling or her, just her mouth was moving. Uh, but that's kind of strange because there were tons of prayers, even in biblical times, that were spoken aloud. They were spoken silently. Murmuring is actually a, a Jewish style of praying. So it's kind of odd to think that he would have thought that just because she was her mouth was moving or she was murmuring. So why didn't... Eli, I understand Hannah was praying. Well, I've been to the Western Wall in Jerusalem myself. If you ever go there, or you can look online and you can see it, or if you see it in the news, the Western Wall is the last remaining piece of the foundation of Solomon's temple. It's the most holy place to the Jews. And they come there, and if you look at it, in the cracks of the wall, there's just millions of little handwritten prayers where they're shoving these little prayers into that the cracks of that wall. But the significant thing is the greater portion of the wall is for men. The smaller portion over here is for women. In fact, Molly and I went together, and she had to go to the other side. She wasn't allowed to go to the side um, where I went. That's the only reason you come to that wall is to pray, period, unless you're a tourist. Uh, that's it. Yet women are still restricted Perhaps it was because Hannah was a woman coming to the temple to pray by herself. One Jewish commentator wrote this, a modern commentator, Christian commentator. He said, if you read through the Hebrew Bible, you will not find one woman praying except Hannah. This is talking about the Old Testament. True, there are prophetesses in the Bible, but prophecy and prayer are two different things. Very true. A prophet is one whom speaks to God or whom God speaks to. And a prayer is a person speaking to God. Even when we find other biblical women who wanted to pray or had a prayer, it's a man who prays on their behalf. Very true. Eli had, had perhaps never seen a woman pray, certainly in the tabernacle. But the beauty of this story is that the priest Eli is willing to listen, to hear her explanation, Eli is ready to step out of his fixed traditions and be flexible. And when Eli hears her response, his heart opens in empathy. Instead of continuing to rebuke her or expel her from the tabernacle, he wholeheartedly wishes that her prayer be answered. Um, It's likely that on this annual trip, year after year after year, but on this annual trip, for the first time, she went to the tabernacle alone. She got up from dinner, went to the tabernacle alone. Everybody else had already been there. She goes alone. She's desperate for the Lord at this point. Desperate for the Lord. She didn't go beyond where she was allowed. I'm not saying she did anything sinful. There was a place for women. But it would appear that the act was just an unorthodox approach of a woman coming by herself at a late hour to the tabernacle to pray to God herself. And perhaps that shook Eli up. 
Verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace. What do you say? Go in what? Peace, right? Go in peace. We all want to make sure we're still rolling. Uh, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. There's a command there. Take peace with you and go. And may God give you what you ask. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way. This is kind of a dismiss greeting, dismiss thing. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, before we go on, pay attention to the emotion. Just feel the weight of verses 15 and 16 there. Anxiety, vexation, like to the point that he thinks she's drunk. Like, And, and, and the release of verse 18. Total release. Notice what Hannah went away with here, guys. Not a child. Not a miraculous pregnancy, not even a promise. She went away with peace. This is the moment of power right here. This is it. Not when she gets pregnant. This is the moment of power without a word other than may God answer you. She is at complete peace. We know that because she goes and she eats. What does real prayer look like? What gets God's attention, guys? He's not a genie waiting for you to rub the lamp and ask for your three wishes or, or, or put in the coin and turn the wheel and see what he says. He's a relational, living God, a person. He wants our heart. He wants connection with us. He wants us connected with him. Real prayer, listen to me, seeks a personal relationship, not just an answer. Real prayer seeks a personal relationship, not just an answer. Let's get to the last little bits of the story here. Verse 19 says, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and then they went back to their house at Ramah. So they get up and they worship. And Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. We know what that means in biblical language. Verse 20, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I've asked for him from the Lord. Skip down to verse 24, says, And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. I love that it throws that in there. Like, if you're a mom in the room, the child is young. Samuel has just basically been weaned off of needing her body, so to speak. child was young. Verse 25, then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli and she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord because it's obviously been a couple of a few years for this child. I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, therefore, because of that, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He's lent to the Lord. So that's how long is that? All his life, right? So Lent doesn't mean you can borrow him for a little bit of time. Lent, it means all his life, he belongs to the Lord. We would call that dedicated. He, he is dedicated to the Lord. He's yours. And he worshiped the Lord there. Do you feel like God was unfair to take Samuel from Hannah? I mean, who made the vow here, first of all? 
where did the child come from? Think about this in terms of baby dedication. Just saying. I mean, I have a child who's now a grown, grown woman, but she's going to have a grandchild now. But what if that was what was meant by baby dedication? You know? And how about the thread here of barren women giving birth? If you've been tracking with this, this is quite a few times now that a barren woman has given birth because it's all pointing towards Christ who would be born of a virgin. It all points back to the promise made to Eve that a child from Eve chosen by God would be the Savior. It's God who gives his own son to ministry. Talk about how maybe this was a struggle for Hannah to let go of her son. How about God who gave his only son to a cross for us? It's God who stands in the heavenly temple. Christ who stands there and works in the heavenly temple. Hebrews talks about making intercession on our behalf for as long as he lives. And how long does he live? Eternally, right? He's defeated death. Look at the relationship here between God and Hannah, man. The trust, the gratitude, the devotion, the understanding of her theology. You can read this prayer in your own time, but I'll hit a couple of highlights. This prayer that she throws out is awesome. Look at verse 2, for instance. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. That is such a picture of the Trinity, whether you realize it or not. She's saying none except you, singular. No rock, singular, besides you, our God. God is plural. No, no one except you, singular, our God's plural. Verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. Inherit a seat of honor. Sounds like health and wealth if you're not careful. But notice that that comes after verse 6 and 7. The Lord kills and brings up. Brings down and raises up. Verse 9. He'll guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off. For not by might shall a man prevail. God is in control of all things. No strength in me is able to make it happen. Verse 10. The adversary of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Remember, at this time there is no king. And exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed is literally Messiah. So you could say anoint his Messiah. That's a straight prophecy of God's king, God's Messiah, pointing to Christ again. God not only answers her prayers here. When she's faithful to her vow, he communicates with her through her own prayers. Think about that. He's teaching her through these prayers. This little prayer here, just words coming out of her mouth. But to us, it's scripture, man. I mean, we look at this and we're like, wow, at the theology she had, the understanding of God she has. And for that matter, God is speaking through her to us. You ever think about that? This is just a prayer for her. But God is speaking to us 2,000 years later through this prayer. Imagine the relationship she has with the Lord. She's leaving Samuel at the temple. But notice the language of her prayer. No bitterness. 
No frustration. No regret. Not, not even sorrow. You know? Verse 11, Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. I love the way the story finishes. Skip over a little. We'll come back and get the piece in the middle next week. Verse 18 of chapter 2 says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with the linen ephod. That means he was a priestly garment. So he was in training to be a priest. Verse 19, And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. So every year she comes back to this place and she gets brings some clothes for him and a little robe for him. Uh, I like the tenderness of that statement. It's just cool, like this relationship that she continues to have with him. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, based on the language we just read, as time has passed, it didn't happen immediately, but as time passed, indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So, summary. She'd been praying for years and years and years and years. And she didn't walk away from this moment pregnant. That's not what happened. What she gained in this moment was peace and satisfaction with God. That it's okay. Trusting he's going to answer her when and how he chooses to do it. And something to think about here, by the way, God was pleased to honor her request because it was an investment in his kingdom. Just saying, when you think about what you're going to God about, it's an investment in his kingdom. Why would he not? Hannah sought the Lord, waited on the Lord, honored the Lord with her request, and offered the Lord the very thing that she asked from him. So what's the secret? All right, what's the secret to power and prayer? The secret is there is no secret. And if you're looking for a secret, it's almost like looking for a magic spell to make somebody fall in love with you. It's not there. There is no magic spell. Someone may fall in love with you. That may happen, but if that happens, it's going to come because you invest time in that person. You spend time with that person. You take interest in that person. You trust them. You risk pain. You give them your heart. You know, you, you, you sacrifice for them. You put them first. You do all those things. That's how you find it. Prayer is the same way. Prayer is a relationship. It's not a way to get what you want. It's the deeper and more intimate it gets, the more you can expect from it. There's no secret to making it work. That's what I'm trying to say. The secret is there's no secret to making it work. Uh, a modern Jewish commentary wrote this about Hannah, and I'll close with this. It says, after the destruction of the second temple, that would be the, after the time of Jesus, the sages decided to formulate a standard prayer style for the people of Israel. They searched the scriptures for examples of one wanting to pray for coming generations to imitate. So they have this plan. They want to generate uh, a single model prayer. The amazing thing is that these Jewish sages did not choose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Jonah, on and on and on. Rather, they chose Hannah, the only female praying in the Hebrew Scriptures whose prayer gushes up from a moving heart of pain and honesty. Her prayer forms the basis of Jewish prayer customs to this day. 
That's awesome. So what do you do with this? Well, I'd say it's pretty obvious. Pray. Pray on your knees. Pray lying flat on your face. Pray in the shower. Pray walking in the morning. Pray in the car when you're driving to work or wherever you go. Pray while you're cooking dinner. Pray while you're standing in line for Starbucks. Especially when you're standing in line for Starbucks. Pray all the time. Set time to pray alone. Make specific time to pray alone. Come to church and pray. Set time to pray with other people. Pray out loud. Pray silently. Pray in song. Pray in tears. Pray in laughter. You know, visit people who need prayer and pray. Call people and tell them you're praying for them and here's how and here's why. Pray honestly. That's the biggest one ever. Pray honestly. Don't pray in King James. You know what I mean? Unless you talk in King James. Pray however you... Be honest. Talk. Pray sincerely. Don't pray for show. Don't pray for other people to approve how you pray. Pray the Bible. Man, is that a powerful one. Don't know what to pray? Open up the Bible to any page you like and start reading. And whatever comes to your mind, start praying for it. Whether it be what you're actually reading or maybe you're reading about something and something totally random comes in your mind. Perfect. Pray about that. It's a great tool for praying. Pray the Bible. And then... Expect answers. Then expect, not results, answers. You hear me? Follow me? All right, if you don't mind, stand up, and we're going to finish up with one more song. I'll say this uh, as we close this up. If you've never prayed before, or as I said at the start, maybe you prayed, but you're just throwing words at the universe. If you want to know who you're praying to, if you want to know that he's listening and that he answers, if you want to know him, it's a relationship and it starts with a prayer. A very simple prayer from your heart to say, I know who I am and I know who you are. And without you, I'm hopeless. It's really that simple. I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm separated from you. I know I mess up. I know I screw up. I know all that. But I also know that you are greater. I know you created all things. I trust that. I believe that what you've done on the cross in rising from the grave, I believe that's enough to cover my sin because I will never do enough to cover my sin. That's all it is. Telling him that in your own words. Asking him to lead you, guide you, give him your life. And then tell us, because we want to pray with you when you do. Lord, you are amazing. Your word is awesome. Thank you again for the privilege of opening it and teaching it and talking through it. And again, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about us, that you gave this word to all of us to open it, to share it, to teach it, to talk to others about it. Help us be responsible with it. Lord, I thank you for children. I know they've been in here with us today. and. They've been great from where I sit. I know parents may not feel the same, but I am so grateful for you bringing children into this house, into this place. Um, I hope they always feel welcome here. I hope that they never feel like they're um, a burden or a bother. They're not. I thank you for our Hannah, who invests so much time in these children and in planning for these children. Uh, and in helping them see you. And God, uh, I thank you for their daughter 
and the gift you've given given them and, and given to our church in the same way. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless and grow this church and lead it in a way that glorifies you. It's mind-blowing to think that six six months ago we were in a living room, Lord. I pray that this church would continue to grow and honor you and uh, be a blessing to Tempe. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.